The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. This is Privacy privacy Piracy. That's easy to say. (laughs) I'm Lloyd. I'm the engineer, and uh, Mari's our host. If you don't know Mari, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books. Her two latest ones are Safeguard Your Identity, it's a personal privacy audit, and from victim to victor, step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on uh, Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, and ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows. She even had a 90-minute PBS special, which aired last year, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. And they show that from time to time. You might be able to see it again. So to learn more about privacy piracy and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And And we're also podcasting now, too. Okay, we are podcasting. (laughs) That's right. So you can just download. You can go to our website, and you can just click and download and listen while you're running or or riding your bike or whatever, right? Yep. We have a great show tonight. I am so excited. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Our guest is uh, James Dempsey. He is Policy Director for the Center for Democracy and Technology. And he joined CDT, which is the Center for Democracy and Technology, uh, at the beginning of 1997, and he became executive director in 2003. And this year, he became the policy director. In addition to day-to-day management responsibilities, he works on privacy and electronic surveillance issues, and he heads the CDT's international project, the Global Internet Policy Initiative. So he is uh, really informative to help teach us a lot tonight. Prior to joining uh, CDT, Jim was Deputy Director of the Center for National Security Studies. He also served as Special Counsel to the National Security Archive, a non-governmental organization that uses the Freedom of Information Act to gain the declassification of documents on U.S. foreign policy. Then, from 1985 to 1994, Jim was Assistant Counsel to the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Civil and Constitutional Rights. His primary areas of study of of, uh, responsibility for that subcommittee were oversight of Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, privacy, and civil liberties. He worked at issues um, at the intersection of national security and constitutional rights, including terrorism, counterintelligence, and electronic surveillance, as well as crime issues, including the federal death penalty and remedies for racial bias and death sentencing, which we've heard a lot about lately, information privacy, which we've talked about tons of times, and police brutality. Uh, Jim has traveled extensively outside the United States to speak on these kinds of issues. And from 1984 to, uh, 80 to 84, he was an associate with the uh, Washington, D.C. law firm of Arnold and Porter, where he practiced in the area of government and uh, commercial contracts, energy law, and antitrust. He also had a large, um, extensive pro bono representation of death row inmates in federal habeas corpus proceedings, and he clerked for the Honorable Robert Broucher of Massachusetts Supreme Court. So he has done everything that we could possibly think of, and he's authored tons of articles, and he um, is t- has t- testified in Congress, and he is coming to us today all the way from Washington, D.C., where it's three hours later, so we're real lucky to have him. Jim, are you there? Mari, I am. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. We are so honored to have you. um, My pleasure. 
You know, we we know that you are one of the experts on the Patriot Act and and about all this NSA surveillance. So I'd like to really focus today on on those two issues and probably invite you back on many more issues. But but let's start with the NSA and the spying that went on. Um, Can you tell us a little about a bit about who is the NSA? You know, our the people who listen are people driving, you know, home from work, and they're also students because we're on the campus of the University of California. So, you know, with all the stuff that's in the news, it's hard to keep up with all this. Well, especially with the uh, sort of alphabet soup of uh, intelligence and uh, law enforcement agencies, the NSA is uh, sometimes referred to or used to be referred to as no such agency. Right. Um, NSA actually stands for the National Security Agency, and it is the largest uh, eavesdropping organization in the world. This is uh, the it does vitally important work. I mean, we have to establish that right at the outset. It is the signals intelligence uh, arm of the U.S. government. The CIA focuses primarily on um, human intelligence. We have a different office that runs the satellites in the sky with the super accurate cameras. And then we have the NSA, which focuses on everything electronic, Uh, email, fax, voice, radio, telephone, Um, They are the ears of the federal government, and it's supposed to be that those ears are located overseas and focused on overseas adversaries. The NSA has always been supposed to be primarily uh, operational overseas, collecting foreign intelligence and focusing on foreign communications. In the old days, of course, the Soviet Union, uh, other nation states, it still targets nation states, but also, of course, it targets the international terrorist groups. Right. And does vitally important work in that regard. Right. So what are the actual issues facing us right now with these, this surveillance that has gone on? Well... In December of last year, December of five, it was reported uh, that this NSA, these huge listening uh, interception uh, powers, had been turned inward uh, domestically, uh, and that the NSA was now intercepting communications of uh, to and from Americans, and was doing so without court order. Uh, The NSA has always been uh, allowed to do some surveillance in the United States where uh, international communications are coming in and going out across our borders, but that had always been uh, pursuant to a court order because, of course, it would implicate the American who was on the domestic side of the call. Right. And uh, sometime soon after 9-11, President Bush authorized the NSA to use this power to intercept communications involving U.S. citizens and others in this country and to do so without a court order. And remarkably, and this is what's totally amazing to me, Mari, the president has now gone on record saying, yes, he did it. He did not follow the law. He did not get a court order for this. And he's going to continue doing it. Right. Now, I thought he, I heard what he was saying was, yes, he said what you said, but that he said he was not violating the Constitution. Now, there are many scholars who believe that the Bush administration, in allowing for this domestic surveillance without, you know, any warrants, skirts the law. So what is the law in this area exactly? Oh, to my, to my view, the law is 100% clear. Now, you have to think of this in two pieces. One is the statutory law passed by Congress. The other is the Constitution. Congress adopted, and we can get into uh, a little bit more if you want, 
1978, something called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which said, in the case of national security, when surveillance is carried out domestically or involving one leg of the communication inside the United States, the executive branch, the Congress, and the agencies under him must go and get a court order with that system of checks and balances of proving to a judge that there's some probable cause to believe that the person you want to intercept is a foreign spy, a foreign terrorist, uh, some uh, buddy whose activities are of national security or diplomatic or foreign intelligence interest to the United States, and you let the court then serve as that uh, check. Yeah, the oversight. That's right, exactly. Uh, So, and clearly the president has said, I did not go get court orders in situations that would otherwise have required them. And he has said that he can do so. He can ignore statutory law because he, under the Constitution, is commander-in-chief. And this is a a remarkable and dangerous uh, interpretation of the Constitution, one that, in my view, is completely um, wrong, um, the, the war powers do not, under our Constitution, reside solely with the president. They are shared between the president and the Congress. After all, it's Congress that declares war, not the president. Uh, the, the president is commander-in-chief, but only of the army and the military forces that the Congress creates and funds. The Constitution clearly says explicitly The Congress has the power to set rules regulating um, the Army and the Navy. Um, And this NSA, by the way, is part of the Army. Okay. Um, The Constitution clearly says that Congress has the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the powers vested by the Constitution in the government of the United States or any department or officer thereof. So whatever powers the president has as commander-in-chief, they are subject to the laws that Congress passes. And once, if Congress had passed no law here, the president might well have had the power carry out um, electronic surveillance without a court order, maybe, unanswered. But once Congress passes a law, this Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, once Congress passes that law, and it clearly had the power to pass that law, it was passed under uh, President uh, Carter, signed by President Carter, uh, had been actually proposed initially uh, under the Ford administration. Once the president signs that law, he cannot then say, I'm not going to follow it. Well, let me ask you a question. How hard is it really for the NSA to get these warrants to listen in on people suspected of terrorist well, acts? You know, I mean, is that, it, a, is that an issue? It's not that hard. I mean, it is a process. Um, but, by the way, uh, for 15 days after, the dec- after a declaration of war, the president can carry out uh, electronic surveillance on his own say-so. That's in the statute. So they recognize the sort of uh, exigent circumstances. Exigent yeah. circum- exactly. Right. Even not in times of war, the president can go for 72 hours while preparing the application to go to the court. So in this day of fax machines and blackberries and uh, word processing <laughs> yeah. and email, yeah. that 72-hour period gives the president and his uh, subordinate officers that time. And well, Jim, court, how many, yeah, how many have been denied? I mean, well... <laughs> There have been, uh, since 1978, uh, probably well over 10, probably 15,000, 15,000 of these orders granted, and only about three or four denied. Hmm. So it's not... Now, but here's what the president was doing. He admitted that he wanted to wiretap on a lower standard uh-huh. Then he admits that even if he had had the time to go to court, which he did, 
because he had the 72-hour window right. anyhow. Right. He really was wanting to tap people that he didn't have good information on, that he didn't have a good reason to believe that they were terrorists, that they were, in a way, out there casting a bit of a fishing net. Uh-huh. And that to take this awesome power um, and look at how much of our lives are now um, carried out yeah. electronically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and look at how much of our lives are now global. You know, in 1978, when this Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed, an international phone call was sort of a rarity for the average person, anyhow. Now, all major businesses are global. Many small and medium-sized businesses are global. Many Americans have uh, relatives abroad, um, have uh, people studying abroad, have uh, other kinds of associates abroad. So we're all global now in a way, and certainly we're all electronic. And to take this awesome surveillance power, turn it domestically without the checks and balances of of a court, without congressional approval, without meeting the probable cause standard, which isn't that hard to meet, after all, Mm -hmm. of the Constitution, without going through the sort of building blocks of an investigation, without uh, at least doing some basic checking out of some of your leads and and, and, um, uh, weeding out the uh, false or misleading or uh, incomplete or inaccurate information, Without taking those steps to immediately jump to electronic surveillance, I think um, is unjustified. And after all, you know, Mari, the the biggest problem the intelligence agencies have right now is they're drowning in information. Yeah, Um, yeah. To say they don't, they need more, they need better information, but to just go out there and start scooping stuff up with the so-called vacuum cleaner, um... I just don't think that's good for national security as well as, of course, putting uh, civil liberties at risk. It just reminds me of that total information awareness that we thought was put aside, which really has reared its ugly head in this, hasn't it? Well, that's a fascinating that you bring that up because one of the pieces of this whole revelation, and, and we don't know that much really. I mean, the president has admitted he did not follow the law. Uh, we don't know the full extent of what's going on. I think one of the issues that deserves a congressional inquiry and now is this whole question of data mining. To what extent are uh, the intelligence agencies, either the NSA or others, going and getting all of this transactional data, who's calling whom, who's sending email to whom, um, who's uh, surfing where, who's posting things where, downloading things, etc. Taking all that transactional information and trying to data mine it, trying to find patterns in it without any particularized suspicion, without any reason to believe that um, any of those individuals are engaged in any wrongdoing. And that's, of course, where you know you really get the risk of what are called false positives, right. which is that, uh, you know, the, you've heard the principle, everybody in the world is related to everybody else in the world or has a connection to everybody else in the world by six degrees of separation. Well, you know, I think it's not far-fetched that you call the dry cleaner, the dry cleaner gets a call from so-and-so, um, that person has a call from another guy, and then two or three phone calls down the road and someone's getting a call from Pakistan or from Afghanistan and suddenly that pops up on the radar screen. Right, and um, you're connected. but you And you're connected. And, yeah, yeah. And the computer spits your name out. Right. Uh, and I think that the whole technology there, I mean, well, we have, you know, we, not proven. Well, you know, we have uh, talked so much on this program and I've dealt so much with, with uh, so many victims of criminal identity theft who have uh, who are in databases like ChoicePoint and Axiom and LexisNexis, and these databases are just filled with junk and that has nothing to do with the person or it's incorrect, and so that's 
like you and me. I mean, right. last you know, last weekend I pulled up my own ac- uh, auto track and found errors on there. And uh, but most people can't do that, and well, they can't see right. that. And I think you know, I mean, I am, I am of two minds on those databases. Um, they have inaccuracy problems. They also clearly have value, um, both commercially and to law enforcement. Right. But right. what I want to see again are, I want to see the checks and balances. I want to see the due process. I want to see the accuracy uh, being uh, verified. So and and I want to see the transparency so that if, exactly that if you're in there you right. get to see it and say hey wait a minute this isn't me and we need this trans- is my cousin or right. something and yeah. we need transparency on the commercial databases um, we need at least a certain level of transparency in terms of what the government is doing and I think in terms of what the government is doing we can have the necessary transparency without giving anything away. To the bad guys, um, we don't need to get into specific investigations, specific right. uh, techniques. But I think, you know, the, the, the president, in my view, acted in an anti-democratic way when he came forward in the Patriot Act, asked for amendments to FISA. Yeah. Uh, said he wanted it to be loosened in some ways to give him more power. In fact, that 72-hour rule I referred to, it used to be 24. Uh, in the fall of 01, that was expanded to 72. Some of the other standards were lowered. And to do all of that and then be saying to himself and a few of his aides, ha, we're getting the law weakened, but when it doesn't suit our purposes, we're not going to follow it at all. I think that is the kind of thing where the president should have been upfront and honest and had the debate one way or the other. Um, in fact, the attorney general has said that they thought that if they had the debate, they would have lost it. So they didn't go to Congress and ask for the changes in the law right. to, to support this current program. They got what they could in the Patriot Act, but this, the, the changes in the Patriot Act are minor compared to what the president is, has now admitted he was doing. Yeah, and, and, you know, I, I had a question about that. When the president said that uh, to the American people that NASA was only intercepting, you know, a few domestic, you know, citizens, um, Jim, is, is, I heard differently. Is, it, tell me, do you have any idea about that? What was the eavesdropping well, without, think, without a warrant? I How think much? there were two different things going on, and okay. I think you're right to be reading these stories carefully. As I say, we still don't have the full picture. We deserve to have the full picture, absolutely. But we don't have that yet. There was the listening in on the content of communications, which is considered to be the most intrusive form of, 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 uh, of uh, surveillance. The administration has said that was about 500 people at a given time, several thousand over the course of the past three or four years, where they went without a court order, where they thought there was some connection to al-Qaeda. And that's bad enough because, again, they thought there was some connection to al-Qaeda. How solid was it? How good was it? Was there any oversight? How do you protect against errors? You had nobody uh, doing that kind of uh, oversight. But second, the second piece of it, which potentially sweeps in millions, is the data mining piece, where they're not listening in on the phone call per se, but instead they're scanning the vast traffic of communications. And, again, looking at who's calling whom, uh, what, who's emailing whom, et cetera. And to me, that, although it's on one level less intrusive in that they're not listening in on the content, and we draw a distinction in our laws between the content and the transactional data, a little bit of a false distinction in the modern world, but we draw it nevertheless still. But I think the, the, this data mining um, does potentially affect uh, millions or hundreds of millions of people, and that's what we need to start asking some questions about. And um, we here at uh, the Center for Democracy and Technology uh, have been uh, talking to several members of the House and Senate about posing precisely those questions, because I think that's where... Um, we don't fully understand what's going on. There have been hints that, as you discerned from closely reading the stories, there's been hints that that's been going on. 
and uh, we need to know a lot, lot more about that. Let me just tell our audience who we're speaking to, if you, in case you're driving and you just turn on the radio, we are speaking with Jim Dempsey, who happens to be policy director for the Center for Democracy and Technology, and we're talking about the NSA uh, surveillance, and we're going to be talking about the Patriot Act, and this is really important stuff for everybody to listen to. Jim, you were just talking about the data mining, and I, I had a question about that. And it's my understanding that the government was able to access um, all of these data mining and the telecommunications companies, um, you know, through all sorts of agreements. So, uh, do you know much about that? How were the companies, uh, how were the companies or the agency doing their data mining? Is that what you're going to ask in these hearings, or what That's do you know? That's definitely one of the questions that needs to be uh, probed further. I mean, there's a long pursuant to a court order. Of course, a company is required to cooperate. Uh, the court order is directed to the service provider. Um, and um, the, the companies have to comply with the law. But when the government now. is going beyond right. the law um, and... And there is no court order. <laughs> there is no court order. And yeah. the intelligence surveillance, by the way, in the criminal context, as you know, when a wiretap is carried out in the criminal context, ultimately, after the investigation is concluded, all the parties are notified. And at least then the individual has some ability to say, hey, what was this all about? Mm -hmm. And you can go back and probe whether the government was on a fishing expedition or not. In this area we're talking about now, which is the intelligence area, foreign intelligence, that activity remains secret forever, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is why, to me, having the judge involved up front is all the more important because there's no after-the-fact notice, no after-the-fact uh, opportunity to challenge. Um, most of this never ends up in court, and uh, the, the, the targets of the surveillance are those inadvertently or secondarily uh, monitored never know about it. Yeah, Jim, let me let me just clarify. When people hear court order, a lot of people who don't understand the system think that a court order, well, oh gosh, the president shouldn't have to go through a, a huge ordeal to get a court order. Wasn't the FISA made up of judges that he could actually get a court order quite easily? Well, these are uh, ordinary federal judges in that they've, uh, they have other duties but they are specially designated and assigned to this court, which meets only in Washington, D.C. The court actually meets right in the Justice Department building. They created a secret facility for them. Um, so the, the Justice Department lawyers only have to walk down the hall right, to right. go present these orders. And, of course, there's, it's like any other court. There's a duty judge 24-7 uh, uh, available. And if need be, they'll take the thing out to the judge's house, or right, right. Uh, you know, so it is yeah, not. People, yeah, it's not. It is not a cumbersome process, and right. and and the whole argument. Let me say, Mary, this is important because, um, you know, nobody wants to tie the hands of the president and his subordinate officers um, in this uh, war against terrorism. Absolutely not. Uh, they. They have awesome responsibilities, and we want them to have the tools to carry them out. But um, part of these procedures are actually the creation of the Justice Department itself. Um, uh, part of the paperwork here is the internal process of the Justice Department. If they want to streamline that, they can streamline that. Um, and if the president, the president here has not said but the process is too cumbersome. He has said he just doesn't want to deal with it, period, uh, right. because and, he and wants he, to cast yeah. a broader net, and he wants to be going out on what are uh, a little bit of fishing expeditions. And I think that regardless of the threat, we have to be focused, um, and that fishing expeditions are not going to get us kind of reliable intelligence we need to prevent the next terrorist attack. Right. And one of the whole purposes of going to a court is 
um, to require the government to get its priorities straight and to justify what it's doing and really be able to explain to somebody in relatively simple terms, and this is you don't get into mumbo, legal mumbo-jumbo when you go before the judge, actually. Right, it's right. like, this guy told us X, or we learned the following. Right. And that's how a, a court order, whether it's an ordinary search warrant. Remember, your ordinary police officer, in whether you're talking the LAPD or some three-person police department, they do this every day. They file it, they prepare a simple written affidavit, and they go before a judge and ask for a search warrant. And that's what we're talking about. Right, right. Making that basic, minimal, factual justification of this is what we've learned, and it leads us to believe, uh, it gives us probable cause that something bad is about to happen or is underfoot or these guys are planning something, et cetera. And then, boom, you get it and you can go. Yeah. You know, I think the the thing that has happened is because of the fear of terrorism, people are so willing to give up so much. And and what they're what I, I'm seeing like letters to the editor all the time and, yep. and hearing friends saying, Well gosh, Mara, you know, yep. we have to protect people from terrorism. Don't you want to be protected from terrorism? And look at since nine eleven we haven't had a nine nine uh I'm another sorry, we haven't had another attack, right. and it's because the president has had these powers, and, and it's proof that we haven't had an attack, so obviously this is working, and I have nothing to hide, so who cares? Well, I think that those folks, and it's an understandable reaction, but I think they are buying into um, this, what, what I see as a false trade-off, liberty versus security. Um, privacy versus uh, governmental effectiveness. Uh, and I think we've got to look at this as how can we do both? How can we uh, provide the government the tools that it needs without sacrificing uh, civil liberties? And if you look at the various studies that have been done since 9-11, uh, the Joint uh, Congressional Inquiry of the Intelligence Committees, the 9-11 Commission report, which came out last summer in paperback and was very popular. Um, uh, former Governor Gilmore, uh, Republican Governor Gilmore, Jim Gilmore of Virginia, headed a commission that was uh, congressionally sponsored uh, that studied the failures leading up to 9-11. Not a single study found that the problem was in our checks and balances. Not a single study found that our civil liberties had uh, contributed to the intelligence failures that uh, allowed 9-11 to happen. It was turf wars. It was bureaucracy. Right. It was uh, the failure of the government to use well the information that it already had collected lawfully right. under the pre-patriot standards. Right. They were collecting information, but they weren't using it. They weren't analyzing. They weren't sharing because of turf wars. And um, and we heard whistleblowers talk about this in the FBI. And, and so I yeah. think, I, you know, one of the most disturbing things that I've seen since 9-11 is this notion, and, and some in the press have written about it. You see stories, privacy versus security, uh, uh, freedom versus uh, uh, security. And I think people have uh, too readily bought into this notion that if we give up some freedom, we will purchase security. And I think time and again, that's proven not to be a, a mathematical equation. That's not uh, a, 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 a deal right. that works. Right. And I think that what the president should be doing, what members of Congress should be doing, is saying, we're going to win this, but we're going to win it within the system of checks and balances, guidelines, rules. That's what's going to empower our frontline uh, agents to go out there and do the job they need to do. We're going to give them the support through oversight, through checks and balances, and actually empower them within 
certain rules. Right, right. Now, you know, we're, here we are, we're saying, well, we need to have an investigation about that to empower with certain rules, to make sure we have these checks and balances. But what about those who say, well, look, if, we, um, if we're going to reveal this in, in, in investigation, we're going to ruin the whole uh, project and we're going to be revealing things that we shouldn't be revealing. What do you think about that? See, I think time and again, again, people have looked at that. That was an argument we heard a, a couple of years back uh, about the encryption a debate when the government was trying to control strong encryption. And uh, everybody who looked at that issue concluded, we can talk about the policy without jeopardizing the techniques. Uh, we can have the policy debate. After all, here we're talking about whether you go to court or not. We're talking about what is the level of suspicion. Um, the bad guys are clearly worried about being wiretapped. Mm-hmm. They honestly don't care whether it's with a court order or a presidential approval, probable cause, reasonable suspicion. They don't know. They don't care. They don't know what we have on them. We're not going to disclose, and we can have this debate without disclosing to any individual uh, bad guy what we have on him um, or how we're collecting it because um, at some level the bad guys know that all of their forms of communication are subject to interception. But they're never going to know which ones. They're never going to know which ones we know about. Do we know they just got a new cell phone? Do we know which, which email address? The hardest thing about finding the bad guys is um, not intercepting them once we know what channel or form of communication they're using. It's finding out first what email address they're using, what um, cell phone they're using, etc. And again, we'll never talk about how that's discovered, and that's not the issue. The issue is what are the legal standards, and that's a discussion that we can absolutely have publicly. Yeah, it seems to me we have to give the intelligence agencies the power to do what they need to do, but it's not that hard to get a warrant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And 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 if if Happens out of the every... fa- if only four or five were ever denied in in all these years, and thousands have been you know granted, yeah. Yeah. then that's the real issue to me. Is that that it isn't that hard to get, and of course we want them to get it, and they have to get it, and we want to be safe. Well, and unfortunately, we have with this administration. Um, some of the most radical, go-it-alone attitude um, that I've ever seen, and I think other historians and commentators have said that um, you know this particular administration uh, believes that uh, the president can do no wrong, uh, that the president uh, should not be subject to uh, any controls. And I think that's a very dangerous attitude, and I think it is an attitude that uh, does not well serve either our constitutional principles or our national security interests. Now, Jim, let's let's get into this. How, you know, what about the whistleblowing? I mean, the fact that we found this out, okay, so that's a whole other issue of democracy as well. Right. You know, how do we find out about it? Who were the whistleblowers? Yep. And, and can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's important. And, well, it's and very the, important. Yeah. Because, um, you know, we have a system uh, right now that is imperfect, but it has worked pretty well. Government employees are not supposed to talk about classified material uh, they're not supposed to talk about uh, their work uh, to the press unless they're actually designated to be a press spokesperson. But the fact is um, there are authorized leaks and there are unauthorized leaks. And uh, the fact is um, we have tended in a sort of rough kind of way to have a press that publishes classified information. I think we're now heading down a very dangerous road. It's growing to some extent out of this uh, Valerie Plame situation, a situation which some of your listeners may be aware of. Um, uh, 
Novak, the columnist, wrote an article, named a certain woman as working for the CIA. Turns out she had been undercover. Uh, Democrats, and I fault them for this, Democrats on the Hill saw a way to uh, embarrass the president or thought they could embarrass the president, called for an investigation leak, said it was a crime, which it is, to disclose the identity of of an undercover uh, officer, um, called for an investigation. We now have a a special prosecutor. He's actually indicted uh, one of uh, 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 Vice President Dick Cheney's uh, aides. Um, And some people, I think, were gloating over this uh, embarrassment to the president. I think it was it's uh, bad news for the public, bad news for the public interest to have these kinds of leak investigations because you can easily chill the whistleblowers, the people who we depend upon, people of good will who are seeing something bad happening and they don't want to tolerate the cover-up. And yet if we start going after the press and intimidating the press, Judith Miller, a reporter for the New York Times, spent months in jail. Right. Uh, now there's a leak investigation started into this NSA story. Uh, the New York Times, to its credit, even though one of its reporters had just gotten out of jail, they ran this story knowing very well that their reporter might end up getting um, um, subpoenaed. Right. In the past, in the leak investigations, the government had not focused on the journalists and certainly had not sent journalists to jail. Uh, once we start jailing journalists, we have lost uh, our uh, open government. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, it's a, it's a funny kind of thing where you say, well, wait a minute now, leaking classified information, that's a crime. Yes, but we also know that there's way too much classified information. We also know that the classification system is um, uh, used as a way to cover up wrongdoing. Um, And we've had this kind of um, rough consensus that we let the leaks happen. They're not great. We don't like them, but by the same time, we benefit from them. and now this administration is trying to tip the balance way over to one end of the spectrum to shut off all the leaks they don't like. They're obviously going to continue to leak the stuff they want to leak. But any time there's a leak that embarrasses the administration, they're going to go after it. And once they start going after journalists, um, I think the, the public suffers, uh, democracy suffers, And uh, I I really think that people have to tell their members of Congress, you know, every time there's one of these leaks, some member of Congress says, oh, we need an investigation. I think, you know, that's that's dangerous. And I think we're right now seeing it heading down the wrong wrong path. Right. And it gets back to that security issue of if we leak things that let the rest of the world know, you know, that can hurt us as well. You know what I mean? So well, well absolutely. And, 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 so and that's again, the problem, although you know? one thing that's interesting here, I mean, you know, I think that uh, people don't appreciate how um, the, uh, particularly the, the the mainstream press, which gets the, the the really important leaks, how responsible the mainstream media actually are. I mean, you know, people talk about the liberal media. The New York Times is a conservative institution. And they held the story for a year in response to White House requests. Right, right. And then even when they went ahead and published it, they withheld certain details at the White House request, um, where the White House was able to say this paragraph or that sentence or this little tidbit will cause harm. The New York Times did withhold that. Uh-huh. And I think that's very responsible. Right. And right. I think we have a tradition in the press of that kind of responsibility. I think we have a history on the executive branch side of overreaching. In the Pentagon Papers case, um, the years after this was the 
study of the war in Vietnam that was leaked to the New York Times back in the 60s finally opened people's eyes to how that war was not going as the uh, administration was claiming at the time. Years afterwards, the Solicitor General, Erwin Griswold, who represented the, the, the court, uh, represented the government before the Supreme Court in that case, claiming that there was a national security harm being caused by this publication, years afterwards he wrote and said, no, uh, it was clear to me at the time, and it's even clearer to me now, that there was nothing in those Pentagon papers that jeopardized the national security, even though the president and the Justice Department and everybody else was screaming and hollering that it was. So we have to take some of these arguments with a little grain of salt. Exactly. Let me just tell who we're talking to again. If you're listening and driving, we're speaking to Jim Dempsey, who is the policy director for the Center for Democracy and Technology in Washington, D.C. He often testifies in Congress and really helps us to understand some of the issues, whether you agree or not, at least you need to understand both sides of the issues. Let's let's turn our attention now a little bit to the Patriot Act, Jim, because mm-hmm. we know February 4th, isn't it? Isn't that when they're supposed Around to... Around about uh, the 3rd of February, yeah. yeah. The, the February, the, we know that week, they're supposed to come up and, and reconfirm, or whatever, the uh, Patriot Act. Tell us, again, this this kind of stuff drives me nuts. You know, I, I have the Patriot Act, what is it, like three inches thick? And, and just trying to understand it as someone who has a, a keen interest in it, most people go, oh, oh, yeah, I don't even know what the issues are. No. So could you kind of go over some of the issues? I know you testified in May of 2005 with regard to the Patriot. Kind of tell us what the key issues are right now and where we are. There really it, it is a, a thick piece of legislation. Um, there are really only a handful of controversial provisions in it. One has to do with uh, so-called sneak and peek searches. These aren't even uh, limited to terrorism cases. These are for ordinary criminal cases where the government goes and gets a court order, a warrant, to carry out a search, but goes into your house or your office when you're away or into your house, maybe even when you're asleep, looks around, takes things, uh, does things, uh, and doesn't give you notice. You know, the normal knock, knock, police, open up, we have a warrant. You don't open up, they break the door down, they come in, they have guns on the floor, we have a warrant. That at least gives you an opportunity to look at the warrant and say, man, this says 123 North Main, you're at 123 South Main, and this does happen. Or it says apartment 4B, you're in apartment 5B. This actually does happen. Um, And that's an important part of, again, how we control the government and make sure the government's doing the right thing. Sneak and peek searches, they go in without that kind of notice, and they delay the notice for uh, days or weeks or even months, this administration claims it should have the right to do. That's in the Patriot Act. The question is not taking that power away from the government, uh, but limiting it, limiting it to extraordinary circumstances and putting a seven-day limit subject to renewal but a seven-day limit so it, they can't uh, d- deny you notice for uh, extended periods of time. Um, another provision has to do with um, the so-called business records or library records provision. Again, of course, the government should get access to records of suspected terrorists, business records, bank records, travel records, even library records in some cases. But the question is, what is the standard? And the law, the Patriot Act, as passed in haste after 9-11, had a very low standard. And Congress is trying to, again, put a little factual basis into those government applications and requiring the government to show that the records are actually connected with some suspected terrorist and requiring the government to show some, to the judge, some minimal suspicion uh, some minimal reason to believe that these records are relevant to the investigation. Um, another has to do with uh, roving taps, where the government jumps uh, from phone to phone as it carries out taps again, uh, often a legitimate technique, but you want to make sure that um, they're only tapping a phone when they have some reason to believe that a bad guy is using it and not going up on a pay phone or a computer in a library uh, just because somebody of suspicion happened to use it, 
some time in the past. So the fight is over standards. Uh, what are the rules? What are the checks and balances? Jim, what are what are the mail covers? What's that all about? And how might they shift the power from uh, the postal service? That was the- an interesting proposal, which has not so far gone forward. The administration came forward in this whole debate over the Patriot Act uh, renewal um, that's been playing out over the past year. The administration came forward and actually tried to expand the Patriot Act. A mail cover is a form of surveillance where the government basically copies uh, the two the, the, the return address on uh, the mail you receive. And if they can manage to get your outgoing mail, they cover it. it it's a postal mail technique. It uh, requires the cooperation of the post office. The government issues an order. Um, opening the mail requires a, a judicial order, but copying the outside of the envelope is considered less intrusive. The FBI wanted the power to do that on its own uh, without the cooperation or uh, without the sort of um, additional uh, approval or uh, uh, cooperation, coordination, coordination is the word I'm looking for, coordination, without the coordination of the Postal Service. That one got put to the side. I'm sure it'll be back at some point, but uh, fortunately that one and another very dangerous proposal, even more dangerous than that, the so-called administrative subpoena uh, proposal, which again the administration tried to get into the Patriot uh, reauthorization, that would have given the FBI the power to write its own subpoenas without going to a court, um, just a piece of paper signed by an FBI agent saying, give me everything you got. Um, that one also was put put aside and did not move forward, but they'll be back. So tell us about, you know, with the FBI, with these national security letters, there's been so much hoopla. Well, the national security letter exactly is a, is a form of the administrative subpoena for intelligence investigations for three uh, specific categories of records, although they're pretty important categories of records, um, telephone dialing records, basically your cell phone bill or your long-distance phone bill or your records of your local calls if the phone company has those available, your bank records, and bank in this context has a very broad definition to include car dealers and Uh, travel agents, and your credit reports. These can all be obtained under these so-called national security letters, which, um, interestingly, the national security letter provisions of the Patriot Act were not subject to the sunset. Um, uh, So they're in effect. They don't need to be reauthorized. They don't need to be reauthorized, and a lot of people had not been paying attention to them Uh until, again, uh, a very good journalist at the Washington Post wrote a story saying that since 9-11, uh, the FBI has issued over 30,000 of these national security letters for bank records, telephone records, credit reports. Uh, again, no judicial approval, no notice to the individual that your data has been obtained by the government, no indication of how it's being used. Uh, no indication of who else it was shared with inside the government. And uh, Jane Harmon, uh, congresswoman from California and uh, senior Democrat on the House uh, Intelligence Committee, has introduced legislation just at the end of uh, last year. She introduced legislation, which is now pending, to uh, put some uh, better standards on the issuance of those and to bring those under some form of judicial a control, and I think that's a a good proposal, and that deserves consideration. I know that the the administration is going to fight it, but uh, it's really the kind of thing that deserves uh, support. Uh, so, you're right. That one there almost got lost in the debate, uh, but now it's on the radar screen. So, what do you think is going to happen? In terms well, of this short interest? term, um, I think that the February three, uh, deadline will come and go with no action. Uh, the members of Congress have scattered to the four winds. Many of them are back in their districts. Uh, the only ones in Washington really are the 
Senate Judiciary Committee members, and they're all preoccupied with the uh, Alito uh, yeah. Supreme Court nomination. So very little is happening. I don't know that there will be a deal by uh, February 3rd. I think there'll be another short-term extension. Um, I think undoubtedly uh, the Patriot Act will be uh, renewed uh, by the end of the year. I think there's likely to be, as often is the case in Washington, a compromise. Um, there'll be a, a, some things that I'm disappointed in. Uh, I hope there's some things that I'm pleased in that, that are somewhat of a improvement in the uh, criteria for exercising some of these governmental powers. And, uh, and then we have to move on to the debate over national security letters, the debate over data mining, the debate over the um, National Security Agency program, and uh, one thing we haven't mentioned, but it's critically important, I think, which is the domestic role of the Department of Defense, because also in the past couple of months we've seen uh, revelations that the Department of Defense has been stepping up its uh, intelligence collection activities inside the United States. And that's another thing that goes right to the core of what kind of a country we are and whether the Department of Defense will have internal security um, responsibilities. That gets back to that whole idea of total information awareness and all mm -hmm. this data mining that is uh, just, just proliferating. We only have a couple minutes left, Jim, so I just want to say who you are again for a second. We're, we're speaking with Jim Dempsey, who is the policy director for the Center for Democracy and Technology in Washington, D.C. Uh, are you guys going to be testifying on, uh, on the Patriot Act again? Is there going to be any more hearings that, that would I, allow you to do that? I don't. I mean, last year I testified six times on the Patriot Act. I don't think there will be any more hearings <laughs> on the Patriot Act this spring. There will be hearings on the NSA issue. Um, I'll, t I'll say uh, right now uh, that uh, at our website, uh, CDT, uh, charliedavidthomas.org, uh, cdt.org, we have a lot of resources up there on the Patriot Act. And just this morning, uh, just recently, we put up a, um, uh, a special page, a briefing book on the NSA a controversy. We've got a number of legal analyses there. We've got the administration's position. We've got the transcript of the president's press conference and of the attorney general's press conference and uh, some devastating uh, legal analyses uh, by some uh, legal scholars uh, that take apart the, gov the president's justifications for this program. And we're continuing to update that uh, NSA resource book online uh, regularly. So I urge your listeners to, uh, if they want to learn more and follow this, to go to cdt.org. They can also sign up for what we call our policy post, which is uh, a little email. And I get that out. email all the time. It is wonderful because as soon as I see the policy post, I, I jump Great. over and... Oh, and, good. Uh, yeah, I do. That's Excellent. Uh, I, I'm one of your, uh, I'm on your list, sir. Well, and so. we try, try, try uh, to write it for the non-expert. We try right. to avoid the jargon. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I sometimes slip into that, but uh, we try to make it accessible. No, you do. It's terrific. And, there are, and I want people to go and look at this. It's a nonprofit organization. It is CDC, like cat, D like dog, T like Tom, and go there and see the things that Jim is doing and all the other staff members are doing look at what the uh, issues are, read, and then they can also sign up for the newsletter, and they can also um, get information on what to write to their legislators. We've only got about a minute left here, so Jim, I thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking with Jim Dempsey, who is the Policy Director for uh, Democracy and Tech Center for Democracy and Technology. Jim, we'll have you back again oh, soon. Oh, that's great. And thank, thank you, you so, so much. much, Mari. My pleasure. Okay, and so you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and www.kuci.org. And we have our show every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m., Privacy Piracy. Please stay, make sure that you listen in. I want to thank Lloyd, my great engineer, and uh, listen to KUCI.org, uh, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thank you.
The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.